Today's section of 1 John is arguably the most challenging part of John's letter, but it's a really, really important part of his letter. And it's going to take some thinking, so just a forewarning that uh, you might have to put some thinking caps on here. Last week, we looked at belief, belief in Christ, and how that belief is to wrap around Christian love, wrap around Christian obedience. We looked at the purpose John wrote this letter, which is found in verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. John's purpose in writing this letter is not all that different from the purpose he wrote the Gospel of John, which can be found in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Believe. Belief. Believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Not simply that Jesus existed, because every sane person believes that Jesus was a person of history. But do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? By believing in this truth, you have life in his name. You have eternal life. And this is what verses 6 through 12 in 1 John 5 are leading us to. It is leading us to verse 13, which is the purpose of John's letter, which is similar to the purpose we find in John writing the Gospel of John. How do we come to belief in Jesus Christ? Well, how do we come to belief in anything? You test it. We look for testament, or in other words, we look for proof, evidence, witness, We listen to testimony and we evaluate whether what is presented to us, those tests, those testaments, those testimonies, whether those are valid. So how do we come to belief in Jesus? Well, are the tests, the testimonies, the testaments valid in presenting Jesus as the Christ? And so this is what John addressed in the letter and in his gospel The logic and the reasoning we exercise relies on these tests, these testaments, these testimonies that are presented to us. And this is what should be happening in our classrooms, our courtrooms, our labs, uh, journalism, places of worship, to get to truth. Now, sometimes it happens, and unfortunately, sometimes it doesn't. But we here at Regeneration, we desire to present tests, testimonies, testaments, At our church, and that's why we present the Bible every week. Our belief is to believe in the Bible, to love and obey the Word of God, that we follow the Scriptures, not just when it's convenient, not just when it's comfortable, but all the time. It remains God's Word, and it changes us. We aren't the ones to change the Word of God. If, if we have to do a bunch of intellectual, emotional, social gymnastics to come to some biblical truth conclusion, it's a pretty good evidence that something is off. Because the Bible is really plain about the really important things. Take a look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 again. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Really plain. John 20, verses 30 and 31 again. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. 
not plain. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Plain. There are no secrets with God. There are no secrets with Jesus Christ. The tests, the testaments, the testimonies, they are plain. Nothing is hidden. It's all open for us. They're, they're there for everyone to see, for everyone to read. Everything. You think of all the ugliness of David, all the ugliness of Peter and Paul, every character in the Bible, nothing's hidden. They don't, they don't like tear those pages off and throw them away. They're shown in plain view for everyone to see. We can't manipulate the Bible to say what we want it to say. The truth of the biblical texts, they speak for themselves. And we are to humbly follow the Bible and not lead it to follow us. So what is 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 12, telling us. Now to find out, we have to use Scripture to define Scripture. And now people attempt to do all sorts of things with the Bible to justify their own personal beliefs, their own personal values. And what we have to do is we have to test. We have to look at the testaments. We have to look at the testimonies and test whether they are trustworthy. So what are we testing here in 1 John, we're testing verse 13 because that's the purpose of this letter. We're testing belief in the name of the Son of God, namely Jesus. We're testing whether Jesus is the Christ, whether he is the Son of God. And in the context of 1 John, this is what the early church was confronted with. Jesus claimed to be the Christ, the Son of God. Many people didn't believe it. And so John's letter is addressing the Gnostics. Because the Gnostics rejected that Jesus was the Christ, that Jesus was the Son of God, that Jesus was even divine. And the Gnostics were, were these false teachers who claimed to have this biblical truth. But they were guilty of manipulating the Bible to fit it how they wanted to have their beliefs fit. So it took a lot of this intellectual gymnastics to just land where they did. And quite frankly, this is what the church is confronted with today professing as to Jesus being the Christ, the Son of God, and then going on to do a bunch of mental gymnastics so that they land where they want to land and have the scriptures land where they want them to land. See, the Gnostics didn't deny the existence of Jesus because how could they? All the evidence proved otherwise. What they did deny was the divinity of Jesus. And they claimed that Jesus was the biological child of Joseph and Mary, the son of Joseph and Mary, but not the son of God. But this is what the Bible tells us. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The Gnostics 
didn't think it mattered whether Jesus was fully divine or not. And they came up with their own spin of the story. That Jesus became the Christ at his baptism, stopped being the Christ at his crucifixion. So for three years he was the Christ, but other than that he was just a natural man. That Christ never went through the crucifixion, just Jesus the man. Which makes Jesus' death a natural death, just like any other person. And if that's the case, then there is no atonement for our sins. And so you see the mental gymnastics that have to be done to try to make things fit the way that they want them to fit. And then at the end of it all, it just doesn't add up that we have any hope in Christ. People are guilty of the same things today. Rejecting Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, manipulating the Scriptures to fit what they want rather than the word of God speaking plainly to us. And the Gnostics, they're gone. The word of God is still with us. Now there exist current forms of Gnosticism and Gnostics, but the word of God will remain after even those forms have, have come and gone. It's the same stuff that goes on today because the evil one is still here who repackages things and re-strategizes how to throw people off from simply believing in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. How many Christians are there really? I think the term Christian is just used much more loosely than intended because how many Christians believe Jesus to be the incarnate God? How many Christians believe it's important for Jesus to be divine? Because if everyone who claimed to be Christian strongly believed in the deity of Jesus, would we have the biblical confusion that we have today? And it seems there are a lot of these new forms of Gnosticism today. I personally haven't found people who say Jesus is, is just a bad guy. Jesus is a bad teacher. Jesus is a bad example. Everyone I've spoken to in my entire life has thought Jesus is a good person. And the thing that we've disagreed upon was Jesus' divinity. There are people who claim to be Christian who don't really believe in the divinity of Jesus. If our human nature wasn't taken by Jesus at his birth as Christ, or our sins taken at his death as Christ, then we can't be reconciled with God. So let's take a look at the testaments and the testimonies. Verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. Now the water is in reference to Jesus' water baptism. Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So this is the public announcement of Jesus' ministry and God's witness to Jesus' identity. At Jesus' baptism was where he was commissioned to the ministry God gave him and empowered by the Spirit 
to minister. So you can see where the Gnostics get this idea that it was Jesus' baptism where he became Christ, but this is exactly what John was pointing out as wrong when he wrote verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Jesus is Christ at birth, death, and at his return. Matthew and Luke wrote in their Gospels that Jesus is the Son of God. There is acknowledgement that he is still the Christ at baptism through water, and that he remains the Christ who came by blood, namely by his death. He never ceased being Christ, Son of God. If Jesus is not Christ during his life and his death, then there's no salvation. 1 John chapter 4, verses 9-10. through 10. And this is the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The Son of God has to be fully human, has to be fully divine, and has to be perfect to be the propitiation for our sins. Christ came by birth, as witnessed by the angel Gabriel. Christ came by water, as witnessed by God the Father himself. Christ came by blood, as, as witnessed by so many in Golgotha. The Spirit of God testifies to all of this, and the Spirit of God is truth. John chapter 15, verses 26 and 27. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Take a look at John chapter 16, verse 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. The Spirit doesn't just speak truth. The Spirit is truth. When people ask, what is truth? The answer, God is truth. So when Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's declaring his divinity. And we read from John 15 and 16 about the spirit of truth. This is the Trinity. We can't have the spirit without the truth. And we can't have the truth without the spirit. Continue on here again, looking at verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. There were many, many testimonies who bore witness to Jesus Christ. God the Father by the water at Jesus' baptism, Jesus Christ himself at all of it, the spirit of truth in John 15 and 16, and so many others who witnessed the Christ at the events of baptism and crucifixion. But the three trustworthy testimonies that John points out in 1 John chapter 5 are the spirit, water, and the blood. Take a look at verses 7 and 8. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. Now why three? You have to look back to the law in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 17 and 19. I'm just going to read part of 19, 19 verse 15. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So John gives us three. 
not just three witnesses testifying about three different things, but that all of these three agree on this. Now, if the witnesses, all three of them don't agree, then there's a serious problem with the trustworthiness of the testimony. But here we have three that agree, and they aren't just people. These are divine testimonies. Verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. If we receive the testimony of people, they can lie. How can we not receive the testimony of God who cannot lie? Because God is truth. God cannot lie. And the Bible is really plain about this. He can't lie. And the issue isn't whether Jesus Christ, the Spirit, is telling the truth because they are truth. The issue is whether we are going to believe the truth. The question is belief. It's about faith. The Spirit and the water and the blood, they testify and they agree. Many people were at Jesus' water baptism, but how many followed? We don't know. We're not told. Many people were at Jesus' blood crucifixion. Now, Pastor Bernard, he referenced Matthew 27 a couple of weeks ago, and I, I just want to read part of Matthew 27 just to give us an idea of how many people were there, starting in verse 45. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, plural, right? Hearing it said, this man is called Elijah, and one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. There's a lot of people that experienced this. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they, they went into the holy city and appeared to many when the centurion and those, a centurion was in charge of 100 soldiers, who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place. They were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. We are talking hundreds of thousands of people who made a trip to Jerusalem for Passover. They made that pilgrimage. Hundreds and thousands of, of all over the world. There would be ten thousand, tens of thousands in the city, within the city walls, and then hundreds of thousands all around the cities, outside of the city walls, just camped out all around the city. Josephus, the Roman historian, recorded that there were between one to two million people in and around Jerusalem over Passover. So how many people witnessed Jesus' blood crucifixion? Probably not all million. But let's just say it's fair to say at least a thousand. But how many followed Jesus? See, there's plenty of evidence that leads us to belief. There was plenty of evidence at Jesus' baptism for everyone present. There was plenty of evidence for whoever was at Jesus' crucifixion. Many witnessed these things. 
Many witnessed Jesus' three years of spirit-filled ministry. You see, it's not a matter of evidence because all of them had it. It's a matter of the hardness of one's heart towards God. And the reason why they have a hard heart is because they want to believe that they are God. We want to determine what is good and what is evil. We've wanted the same thing ever since we've been created in Genesis. We've wanted to be God. We've wanted to determine what is good and evil. We want to be in control. We want to determine our own destiny. We want to determine how we want to live our lives and dictate our own morality, who to include and who to exclude. Whoever accepts the testimony of the Spirit, water, and blood can't live as God anymore. And the truth of the matter is, many people don't want that. They want to be God. And it's no wonder why people don't want Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, because if Christ is accepted into your life, you are admitting you're not God. And that you belong to God. Who is Jesus Christ? Who is our Lord? Who is the Christian's Lord? So many would rather listen to their own God themselves then listen to God, Jesus Christ. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. You will either bow and confess in faith or you will bow and confess in judgment. But every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9-11. through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Spirit the water, and the blood testify as to who Jesus is, the Christ, the Son of God, Lord. Just think about the beauty of communion. There is no one else that has this beautiful picture of God. The body of Christ broken for us. The blood of Christ spilled for us, testifying of Jesus. Son of God, Christ, the true sacrifice for our sins, just as the Spirit, the water, and the blood testify to. The gift of eternal life given to those who believe in the name of Jesus. Where are you with Christ today? Where are your loved ones with Christ today? Because this is a life and death matter. Not just this temporary life that we're living for 70 to 80 years on this physical earth. This is a matter of everlasting life. Everlasting death. Verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. How do you know you're a Christian? Do you find yourselves in agreement with verses 6 through 10? Or are you in disagreement with it? Is the testimony of the Spirit, the water, and the blood in you, or is it not? Continuing on in verse 10. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. 
The unbeliever has made God a liar. But we already know that God is truth, that God cannot lie. So who is the real liar? You and me? The one who believes themselves to be God? The belief in yourself to be God is is your choice. It's not truth. You're just choosing that. But you already know it leads to nowhere because you already know yourself to be powerless, don't you? I mean, it's so evident today, especially. There's a virus out there that you have no control over. There is injustice out there that you have no control over. There are things in your own personal life that you have no control over. We humans make very weak gods. Verses 11 and 12. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. There is no way, there is no truth, there is no life without Christ. And that is not my opinion. It's the Bible. It's plain. John 14, 6, 1 John 5, verses 11 and 12. To know Jesus is to know eternal life. That without Jesus Christ, there is no eternal life. And that eternal life isn't something that we can earn. That eternal life is a a gracious, generous gift from God found only in His Son, Jesus Christ. And you can have it today. Whoever has the Son has life. But the unbeliever chooses to reject the evidence of the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and chooses not to believe in the testimony that God has borne concerning His Son. And the unbeliever makes God out to be a liar when in fact it is the unbeliever who is lying to themselves because God is truth. Jesus Christ had many unbelievers in John's days with the Gnostics. People who looked to be really close to the real thing, actually. People who knew their Bibles well enough to argue that Jesus was the Christ after his baptism, but before the crucifixion. You know that counterfeits are always going to be really close to the real thing, right? Those luxury brand knockoffs are really close to the real thing. Otherwise, they wouldn't sell. They're really close. But people are still being sold a false good. If it's not Jesus Christ, it's a false God. And you're being sold a false God who will never deliver, who cannot deliver, who is powerless to deliver. The false God won't have a solution to the disease that is out there, to the injustice that is out there, to anything that you are powerless against in your own personal life. We deal with modern-day Gnostics today who won't be able to deliver. What's the testimony inside of you today? And if you don't know, there's a very serious problem. Because think about this. If someone were to ask you, are you married? And you said, um, I, I don't know. Well, you got a serious problem. Right? If someone asked you, do you have children? And you said, I I don't know. Well, you have a serious problem or you have serious problems. Like, you don't know. 
It's so freeing to know God, to know, because you can admit that you don't know between good and evil. And that you can rest on the Spirit and God's Word to lead you in that. You aren't powerless because you are the child of Almighty God who is omniscient and omnipresent and omnibenevolent. And if you believe in the Son of God, you have that testimony in you. So share it. Share that testimony. The the world desperately needs you to do that, and you do have control of that. Share your testimony. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, forgive us for the lack of boldness to share who you are. We know for a fact it's not because of a lack of evidence that people aren't following you because there's so much of it. There was so much of it at your baptism, during your life, at the crucifixion, and yet so many still did not believe. It is not a matter of evidence. It is a matter of hard-heartedness. And we pray, Lord, for you to soften the hearts of people who are about to receive your gospel. Lord, give us the boldness to share who you are. The one sent by the Father to set us free from the slavery that we are bondage to in sin. God, help us to see it clearly. Help us to see your divinity clearly. Help us to discern your word plainly. And stop trying to do these mental gymnastics to try to land on things that we want it to read, but they're plain. God, thank you for that beautiful picture of communion that we are about to take together. And I ask, Lord, for your blessing on this time that we would connect with you in a way that is so real and tangible, just as you've provided the bread broken bread symbolizing your broken body and your fruit of the vine symbolizing your blood. So for those of you who have these communion elements, I invite you to bring them out, to take this sacrament that nobody else has. This beautiful picture of God saying, I sent my only son for you to be broken for you Because I love you and I want a relationship with you. Let's take this glorious bread together. The fruit of the vine symbolizing the blood of Christ spilled for us. It was so costly. All of eternity was planned for this moment so that we can be reconciled to almighty God. Let's take this in remembrance of Christ. Lord, thank you so much for your sacrifice, for your promise that you're returning for us. Lord, make your bride, the church, ready for your return, please. In Jesus' name, amen.